That's Genesis chapter 19, verse, verses 1 through 29, starting in verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, No, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them, and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, This one came in as an alien, and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law, and your sons, and your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because their outcry has come so great before the Lord, that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, and said, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, O oh no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small, that my life may be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the town was called Zor. 
The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and, and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. This is the word of God. Well, let's bow our hearts and let's ask God's blessing. Father, would you, before I even ask for anything, Lord, I just come before you as a, a needy sinner, one who is weak in myself, one who has many flaws and failings. And Lord, I pray for your cleansing. I pray for all of us here that you would cleanse us of sin. I pray, Father, that as we approach this word that is holy and sacred, an infallible revelation from our Creator, that we would do it with reverence. And we pray, Lord, that we would learn what you intend for us to learn today, that you, you'd help us to take it to heart, that we would flee from sin, and that we would live holy, godly lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Genesis chapter 18, we find three strangers coming to visit Abraham. And in those days, hospitality was extremely important. And so Abraham jumps up and he runs to these three strangers and he says, please sit down under the shade of this tree. Let me bring you some water so that you can wash your feet and I'll, I'll prepare you something to eat. And so he actually goes and kills an animal, butchers an animal, he asks his wife Sarah to make bread, and he, he comes up with this wonderful feast. He brings it to these three people, and they eat, and they fellowship, and drink together. And then Abraham walks with him to send these three fellows on their way. And we say, well, okay, what's, what's important about all of that? Well, we find from chapter 18, verse 22, that it says, Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. And then chapter 19, verse 1 says, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. So we find out that there are three men that appeared to Abraham. Two of them are angels. Okay, so who's the third one? Well, look back at the verse we just read in 18.22. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before who? The Lord. One of these strangers was the Lord himself. The other two were angels. So I understand this visitation as a visitation of Jesus Christ himself, the Lord. Before he became flesh, before he was born of Mary, he took on various appearances throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes he's referred to as the angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord. Well, here we have Jesus Christ himself, the Lord, revealing himself to Abraham. And for a very specific reason. He tells Abraham that he's 
the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah has come up to his ears. And the cry was so great that he's coming down to see whether it was so. And if so, he's going to destroy those cities. And then the two men, the two angels, and these are angels who are appearing as human. These angels go on towards Sodom and the Lord is left with Abraham. And Abraham begins to intercede on behalf of Sodom. Now, why do you think Abraham is so interested in the inhabitants of Sodom? Does he know anybody that lives there? Because of Lot. He's already risked his own life once to save this foolhardy nephew, right? Nephew's lit, or Lot is living in Sodom, and four powerful kings from the northeast swoop down, and they wage this warfare. Lot's caught in the crossfire, and they take him captive. And so Abraham, the uncle, takes 318 of his servants and goes after them and wages war and delivers Lot and brings him back. Well, here for the second time, Lot's in trouble. And so Uncle Abraham begins to intercede on behalf of this nephew. And he starts off by saying, Lord, you're the judge of all the earth. Will you spare the entire city if you could find 50 righteous people? And the Lord says, I'll spare it if I find 50. Well, what about 45, Lord? Yeah, I'll spare it if there's 45. What about 40? Okay, I'll spare it for 40. What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And he comes down to 10 and he stops, maybe thinking, well, I dare not even go past 10. What turns out is that there weren't even 10 righteous people, and so God does end up destroying the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the five cities of the plain. But here you find Abraham interceding on behalf of these cities. I've always wondered whether this was where that expression came from, to Jew somebody down. You know, you're trying to negotiate and get the price lower. Abraham was a pretty skilled negotiator with the Lord, wasn't he? I figured if he lived today, he'd probably be pretty good at buying used cars at a used car lot. I'm horrible at that, but he, he's, pretty, he's pretty good. But we find him bargaining and interceding and asking the Lord, will you spare the city? Now, what I want to ask you this morning is, why is this story, why is Genesis 19 in our Bible? What purpose does it serve? What's the point? Why has the Holy Spirit given us this story? Well, we learn the point if we compare New Testament Scripture with Old Testament Scripture. So I'd like you to go to the book of Jude in your New Testament. And we're going to look at two passages, one from Jude and one from 2 Peter. And both of these passages shed light on what we're reading. So the book of Jude, that little tiny book right before the book of Revelation. And look at verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And we learn here, God gave Sodom and Gomorrah as an example to the rest of the world. An example of his punishment of eternal fire. Okay, with that in mind, flip back a couple of chapters to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2. And let's pick it up in verse 6. 2 Peter 2, verse 6. And if God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. 
Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Here again, we're told that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah prefigured God's final day of judgment. In fact, Genesis 19 is a type. It's a type of the final judgment day in which some will be delivered and others will be destroyed. And I don't know if you remember, but the sermon on um, Genesis chapter 6 and 7, the flood of Noah's day, there's lots of parallels between the flood of Noah and the fire and brimstone that came down and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Both of these events are prefigurements, they're shadows, they're illustrations and pictures of the final judgment day when God will bring judgment upon the whole world. Some will be delivered, but sadly most will be destroyed in that day. So we're going to look at all of that this morning in Genesis chapter 19. And we're going to look at actually two parts. First of all, the destruction of Sodom, and then the deliverance of Lot. So first of all, the destruction of Sodom. And there's four things we're going to see about the destruction of Sodom. First of all, that it was just. It was a just judgment. And to see this, we need to to turn back in our Bible to Genesis chapter 13. There's a little verse here, Genesis 13, verse 13, that sheds some light on why God had to bring judgment. Genesis 13, 13 says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly, and sinners against the Lord. Now this is telling. God is trying to communicate something here. They were sinners exceedingly. Go over to chapter 18, and verse 20. There it says, The Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. So, something, something above normal. We're all sinners. All men are sinners. But something different is happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. Exceedingly grave sin is taking place. Or if you turn over to chapter 19, let's take a look at verse 13. The angel said, For we are about to destroy this place, Because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So God was hearing the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah's sin. It was rising to the heavens and God was hearing it. And God said, I'm going to come down and destroy those places. It was exceedingly great. Exceedingly sinful. Now, we just read Jude verse 7, which says that these people went after strange Flesh. They indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. What's he talking about? What does it mean to indulge in gross immorality and go after strange flesh? Well, let's read the story for us. Starting in verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside unto your servant's house and spend the night. Now that's significant. Please, he's begging them, please turn aside. Come into my house and spend the night in my place. 
wash your feet, and then you may rise early and go on your way. Why do you suppose he's telling them they've got to get up early and get out of that place? He knows something about the people of Sodom that these strangers he thinks don't know. He knows how vile and wicked they are. They said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. Do you see the point? You can't spend the night in the square. No matter what you do, do not spend the night in the square. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom. Now notice a couple of things here. Somebody had gotten wind that there were these uh, two strangers that had come to Lot's house. Somebody saw it. And it's very clear that the people that rose up are the men. Twice that's repeated. The men of the city, the men of Sodom. Not the women, not the children. These are the men. They surrounded the house. Now, Lot was a very wealthy man. I imagine he had a big home. They surrounded that house. Both young and old. You've got your 20-somethings, and you've got your 60- and 70-year-olds, and you've got everybody in between. All the people from every quarter. Okay, we can't get any more graphic than this. All the men of the city. There was a huge riot. of This great multitude surrounds the house, young and old, all the men of the city. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may have relations with them. Now the NASB softens it a little bit. If you have a newer translation, it says, So that we may have sex with them. That's the point. Bring out the men, we want to have sex with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him. And he said, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. You've got to give Lot a little bit of credit. He knows that this is wickedness. Even though he's been inundated by this because he's been living in Sodom for some time, Lot happens to be a righteous man. We'd never guess it by looking at his outward life. But he is a righteous man. He knows this is wickedness. Now behold... And this, we, can't, we can hardly not even believe what he's about to say. Behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. That also tells us that Lot had done something right. He had two virgin daughters. It might simply be because the, the men are not interested in women in that city. I don't know. But he says, please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you want. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now we scratch our heads and think, this doesn't make sense. I, I can't understand how someone would give his two virgin daughters, do whatever you want to them, I just need to keep these two strangers that I just met a couple of hours ago safe. Well, a couple of things might help us with this. First of all, it was the common custom in those days that if you provided hospitality and you took strangers into your home, that you were pledging your life to protect them. You would protect them at the cost of your own life. Secondly, sadly, women were not valued as much as men in that day. They had a lesser value in the esteem of the culture. And so taking all that into consideration, we might start to understand a bit why Lot might do this, but it's still shameful. It's still horrible. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. So the angels... I'm sorry, I missed a verse, didn't I? Verse 9. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien, and already he's acting like a judge. 
Now we will treat you worse than them, which tells you that they had evil intentions against uh, the two angels. They didn't know they were angels. These two men, they had evil intentions. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. <laughs> so the lights go out. These guys are totally blind. They can't see a thing. You would think that they'd say, well, can someone lead me back home? I'm tired of this. This, this, I, I've got to get some relief. I don't know what's happening to me. You think they'd be in crisis mode. Instead, they weary themselves trying to find the doorway. They're not giving up, even though they're blind now. Incredible, exceeding, vile wickedness is going on here in Sodom and Gomorrah. So the first sin that we're introduced to, that is probably the reason that the Lord said that their wickedness was exceeding great, is the sin of homosexuality. And it's strange. It's strange because we live in a culture today that does not believe any longer that homosexuality is evil. In fact, the majority of Americans now are in favor of legalizing same-sex marriages. It's just we have accepted it. I don't know how this has happened. When I grew up, nothing like this existed. In fact, it was in the 60s when um, the Psychiatric Association believed that someone who was a homosexual, that they had... Um, mental problems, that they had a form of, of mental illness if they were homosexual. Now today it's accepted as a normal sexual alternative lifestyle. So here we are introduced to this particular sin, the sin of homosexuality, and we, we, have, to, we have to agree that even though our culture has done a 180 in regard to what it views regarding se uh, homosexuality, I don't think God has changed his mind. Do you? Do you think God changes his mind because we change ours? Sean has already taught us this morning about God being immutable. God does not change, especially when it comes to his moral nature, what he approves of and what he disapproves of. I want to, always going to put a slide up here. I'm going to give you a, a mini theology of God's view of homosexuality. There are five passages in Scripture which are very clear about this particular practice. And we're not going to spend a lot of time with this, but just briefly, let's do an overview. Two of them are in the Old Testament, three of them are in the New. Uh, I have it right here. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. God says, it is an abomination to the Lord. Leviticus 20, verse 13 says, it is a detestable act, and that those who commit it are to be put to death. Blood guiltiness is upon them. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, tells us four things about this practice. It's a degrading passion. It is unnatural. It is an indecent act. And those who commit it are committing error. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, tells us that the people that practice this particular activity, homosexual behavior, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That means if you live a homosexual lifestyle, you will not go to heaven. You will instead go to hell. And then the last text is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, which lists homosexuality and says it is contrary to sound teaching or healthy teaching. 
Okay, so those are the five clear verses about this practice in the Bible. I realize that just by getting up and reading those verses today, we could be persecuted. I could be persecuted saying that uh, I'm a hate monger, I'm a homophobic person, or whatever they say about people that just tell the truth. All I did was tell you what the Bible said. I didn't even elaborate on it. That's simply what the scripture says about this practice. It's abominable, it's detestable, it's unnatural, it's degrading, and it will shut a person out from heaven. And that is the great sin that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were committing. And that's why the practice of homosexuality is often called sodomy. It's named after the city in which we first find it practiced in the Bible. So these are the sins of commission in Sodom. The sin of commission was that of homosexuality. But there's also sins of omission going on here. And we would never know about this were it not for Ezekiel chapter 16. So I'd like to read to you from Ezekiel 16, verse 49 and 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Now, oftentimes people read that and they say, oh, well, this is why God judged Sodom. It was because they were selfish. They had all this food and ease and they didn't help poor and needy people. But read the next verse. And I don't think Olga has got it up here. Let me read it to you. Behold, this was the guilt of your... I'm sorry, verse 50. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore I removed them when I saw it. So both things are mentioned. The abominable sin of sodomy as well as the wickedness of being selfish and uncaring and uncompassionate towards the poor and needy when they had so much. Now when I read this verse, I think of something. Do you know what it is? I think of us. I think of America in the year 2013. We are a people of plenty. We have plenty of food. We have lots of ease. And we are a city that has approved and welcomed the abominable practice of homosexuality. Billy Graham once said, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I would say, yes, we aren't any better than they are. So God's judgment, first of all, was just. It was right. And this is only a picture of the final judgment to come. When God's judgment comes upon this world one day, it will be just. No one will have cause to complain that God was unfair, unrighteous, or unjust at all. He's going to open the books, and the books are going to reveal our deeds, and we will be judged by all of the deeds which we have committed in the body. Okay, secondly, the destruction of Sodom was deliberate. It was deliberate. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, it says that God overthrew the cities and reduced them to ashes. And then take a look at verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. You see, some people say this is just a freak accident of nature. Some volcano erupted, 
fire and brimstone came down and landed on those cities of the plain and destroyed them all. It was just a weird coincidence, just a freak accident. Well, not according to our Bible, is it? It was deliberate. It said the Lord rained on them brimstone and fire, that God is the one who did this. See, we're, we're not trying to get God off the hook. We're saying what God, God claims responsibility for this judgment. He has it written in his word saying, I did it. It was deliberate. I brought the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and the plains of the city. And folks, when the final judgment comes, it's going to be because it came from the deliberate hand of God Almighty. God himself will receive some into eternal glory and God himself will cast others into eternal hell. God's going to do that. I know I've heard some preachers say, well, God doesn't throw anybody into hell. People jump into hell. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Let me just read you one passage. This is from 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, starting in verse 7. It says, The Lord Jesus is going to be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution. Are we familiar with that word? It's talking about vengeance. Payback time. It's retribution. To those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So God's wrath is filling up. And one day it will be filled up to the brim and it will start to overflow. And he will deliberately bring judgment upon a Christ-rejecting, godless world that have shook their fist in his face and wanted nothing to do with their creator, God will eventually bring judgment to this world. And it'll be deliberate. And it'll be just. And thirdly, it will be unexpected. I want you to look with me at uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Jesus had something to, to say about the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And whenever Jesus has something to say about Old Testament Prophecies, it's really good for us to pay attention. Luke 17, verse 28. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating. They were drinking. They were buying. They were selling. They were planting and they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Now, did you notice what Jesus is emphasizing here? They were eating and drinking, <clears throat> buying and selling, planting and building. In other words, nobody expected it to happen. Nobody woke up that day in Sodom and said, I wonder if fire is going to fall today and kill me and everybody else in this city. Nobody expected it. It was sudden. Sudden destruction. And Jesus is saying it's going to be the same way when he comes back. Nobody's going to be looking for it. Except for his people, they'll be looking for his coming, but all the rest of the world are going to be caught unaware. In fact, in fact, Jesus said over in the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verse 42, he said, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Unexpected. 
sudden. And Paul says over in 1 Thessalonians 5, is he's coming like a thief in the night. And it's going to be like a woman who all of a sudden starts having these birth pangs. And he says, then they shall not be able to escape. Destruction will come upon them suddenly. So it's going to be a just judgment. It's going to be a deliberate judgment. It's going to be an unexpected judgment. And it's also going to be a thorough judgment. It's going to be thorough. In other words, it's going to be comprehensive. It's going to be complete. We just read Jesus saying, fire and brimstone came and destroyed them all. (laughs) Right? Or if you look in Genesis 19, verse 25 says, And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So even the trees were obliterated. The plants were destroyed. The cities came tumbling down. Every person that was left in those cities was killed instantly by the fire from heaven. Except for Lot's wife and she was turned into a pillar of salt and died there in the plain. It was a thorough judgment. Nobody escaped except for three souls, Lot and two daughters. Everybody else was wiped out. And when God's final judgment day comes, it's going to be thorough. That's why the people in the book of Revelation are crying out to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb who is to come. From God Almighty. But there's no place to hide, is there? John says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne. There's no place found for them. Earth and heaven flees away from this throne. Nobody can hide. Nobody can can somehow get away from this judgment. All are summoned. The great... The kings and presidents of the world and the small, the obscure, poor people of this earth, all are gathered together before the great day of the Lamb. So it's going to be just, it's going to be deliberate, it's going to be thorough, and it's going to be unexpected. But let's turn our attention, secondly, to the deliverance of Lot. And without this, we might come to this chapter and think, wow, is there any hope at all that anybody can be saved? But in the midst of judgment, God exercises mercy, doesn't he? He exercises mercy. There are two things we need to see about Lot's deliverance. That it was by grace alone, and that it was by God alone. First of all, it's by grace alone. In order to understand that it was gracious, we have to look at Lot's character. So I want you to look back with me starting in chapter 13. Let's take a look at his character. Lot was not... The shiniest Christian under the sun. He wasn't the greatest example of Christian virtue. In chapter 13, what happens is that Abraham and Lot become so prosperous, and they have so many flocks and herds, that they can't dwell together. There's just not enough grazing land. And so Abraham says to his nephew, Here, you depart from me, and you go wherever you want to, Go to the north or the south. Whatever you take, I'll take what's left over. But we've got to split up because we just don't have enough room. And there was conflict between the herdsmen over this. So Lot lifted up his eyes and he looked at the well-watered plains of the Jordan and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, yeah, that's what I want. And he took it. And it says 
in chapter 13, right around verse 15 or so, it says that he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Well, the very next chapter, chapter 14, verse 12, says that he was living in Sodom. When we get to chapter 19, verse 3, he owns a house in Sodom. In chapter 19, verse 1, it says that he's sitting at the city gates, and that's where he sees these two strangers. Now, what goes on at the gates of the city? Yeah, the elders of the city sit there and pronounce judgments and make decisions for that particular community. It's very likely that Lot had risen to a place of prominence, and now he's one of the elders of that wicked, corrupt city. In fact, remember what the people, what that mob said? You came in as a stranger, as an alien, and now you're treating us like a judge? Well, they may have been saying that because he had risen to prominence as was one of the leaders there within Sodom. So he just started off by pitching his tent towards Sodom. Now he's a leader within that corrupt city. And you've got to know, living in a place like Sodom is going to take its toll on you. It's going to take its toll on you. In fact, it does. Because if you turn over to Genesis 19, take a look at verse 14. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters. And he said, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Now that tells me something. His sons-in-law did not take him seriously when he spoke earnestly about God and about God's judgment to come. It was a joke to them. They couldn't believe. He had lost his testimony. He hadn't been living such a righteous, upright life that they took him seriously when he spoke on behalf of God. They just laughed it off. Oh, that's father-in-law kidding around again, you know. And we can lose our testimony when we cave in to the worldliness around us. And people don't take us seriously anymore when we speak on behalf of eternal, eternal things. Notice also that when those angels took him by the hand to lead him out of the city of Sodom, it says in verse 16, he hesitated. <laughs> he hesitated. They told him he was going to die if he stays there. And he's looking around. He's got lots of wealth. He's got a house. He's got silver and gold. He's got perhaps jewelry and fine art or whatever it is. He's got possessions. He's got all these herds and flocks. And he hesitates. And then when they finally get him to get out of the city... He starts arguing with them over where he should go. They tell him to go to the mountains. He says, no, I can't go there. I'm afraid to go. Let me go to this little town over there called Zoar. So he hesitates and he argues. We don't see a real stunning example in this man Lot, do we? Do you remember how he ends up his days? We didn't read it this morning, but in verse 32 to verse 38, his, his own daughters believing that they're the last people on the earth because this fire fell and killed everybody, and they want to have children so they can pass on the family name, they get their father Lot drunk, and they have sex with them in order to have babies, and both of them conceive and have children. That's the last thing we hear about Lot. Now, if all we knew was what the Bible in Genesis told us about Lot, we'd think this guy's a sinner. This guy's lost, right? That's what I would conclude. Okay, let's read... What the New Testament says about him, and this is stunning, 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. And if he rescued righteous 
Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. We get a little inkling of something that we don't pick up in the Genesis account. He lived there, and I think he was affected by their worldliness and sensuality, and he had drifted from God, but yet he was still oppressed by it. Which is true of any true believer. You stick a true believer in a worldly, ungodly atmosphere, and there's a, the oppression of spirit that happens. We don't like it. We're uncomfortable in that situation. And sometimes we deliberately go into those worldly situations, but not because we like the sin, but because we want to rescue the perishing that are in that situation. And that's why Christians will go to bars to witness to people, or they'll go to the light rail, where there's ungodliness everywhere. It's not because we like what people do there. It's because we seek to rescue those who are there. So this is what we find. Lot was a man who had much to be desired in, in the way of godliness. But yet he was a righteous man. How was he righteous? By grace. <laughs> Aren't you thankful for grace? Maybe you can point to some of the things in Lot's life and you can say, well, you know, I can see some areas in my life where I'm kind of like Lot too. Thank God for his grace that declares us righteous, that takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ and puts it to our account in spite of us, not because of us, but in spite of us. You know, the Bible says in Titus chapter 2, verse, no, chapter 3, verse 5, God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but because of his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. For you have been saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that anyone should boast. The grace of God. Thank God for His grace. So the deliverance of Lot was by grace alone, but I want you to notice also, it was by God alone. Lot is not cooperating in this deliverance. You see that? Let's read verse 15. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. Lot is not delivering himself because Lot doesn't even know a judgment is coming until the angels tell him. The angels have to come and reveal that to him or he would never even have known it. And then notice verse 16. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand, and the hand of his wife, and the hands of his two daughters. For the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. Lot wasn't even going to go. He was hesitating. So in order to deliver them, these angels seized Lot and his two daughters by the hands and drug them out. He, they forcibly brought them out of the city. The reason I emphasize that is because so many people think that the way someone gets saved is they do their part and God does his part. Here's a 50-50 proposition. Jesus did half of it when he died on the cross. We do the other half when we come and make a choice of our free will to embrace Jesus Christ. And folks, that's, not, that's just not the way it works. It's not even Jesus doing 99% and us doing 1%. Do you know what the Bible teaches? Jesus does all of it. 100%. We receive by grace what he has wrought for us there at Calvary's cross. And I see in verse 15 and 16 a wonderful illustration 
of what Jesus taught in John chapter 6, when he said, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Do you know that word draw literally means to drag? It means to overcome by a superior power, to overcome resistance. It's the word used of Peter drawing the sword out of the scabbard. Peter overcame the resistance, the heaviness of that sword by a superior power and drew it out. It's also used of Peter when he drew those 153 large fish to shore. He overcame the resistance, the drag of those fish, and he drew them because of a superior power. It's the word used in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas were dragged before the magistrates. What we're told here is that these angels overcame Lot's resistance. He was resisting. He was arguing. He was hesitating. He wasn't cooperating. Why then did the angels choose him and his daughters and bring them out of the city? Did you see it there? Because the compassion of the Lord was upon him. The compassion of the Lord was upon these three individuals in a way it was not upon everybody else in that city. God had marked them out for deliverance. Marked them out for salvation. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, it says that we were all by nature children of wrath. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And then it says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. That's how salvation works. God comes to dead people and makes them alive. God comes to resisting people and overcomes their resistance by irresistible grace, an irresistible call that causes them to have his life. Their nature is changed. They come to life. The heavenly light shines in their hearts. He takes out the old heart, gives them a new one, and they're alive from the dead. That's how it works. He overcomes resistance. He draws them out of the city. Romans 9.16 says, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now listen to that verse very carefully. We are taught over and over and over by people on TV and on radio, it depends on you. It depends on your free will. It depends on the choice you make. Romans 9.16 says the opposite. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. That means his exertion or his choice. Well, if it doesn't depend on my exertion or my choice, who does it depend on? God who shows mercy. Who Here it says the compassion of the Lord was upon them. God shows mercy to whom he'll show mercy. He shows compassion to whom he'll show compassion. And this is just a stunning illustration of the sovereign grace of Almighty God. And brother and sister, if you're saved today, I hope you give God the glory for it. See, when you get to heaven, you're not going to be able to look down on those people in hell and say, hey, I am up here and you're down there because I had the good sense to believe in Jesus and you didn't. I did something that you failed to do. I can take a little bit of the credit because, after all, a little bit of that credit is due me. I made the right choice. You can't do that. 
simply can't do that. Because even the choice was a result of the grace of God working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's why the psalmist says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to thy name give glory. And I hope you ascribe 100% of your salvation to the glory of God and the grace of Jesus Christ. So the deliverance of Lot was by grace alone, because he had nothing to merit it. And it was by God alone, because he was actually resisting it. Now there's a passage in 2 Peter I want to close with. And so would you look with me over at 2 Peter chapter 3. Because I want to ask you, well, what difference does this story make for us? How does God want to apply the things that we've learned here? 2 Peter 3 verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. Just as an aside, this is, this is why I'm all millennial. Is 2 Peter 3.10. <laughs> that was one of the verses. Because when Jesus comes back, the whole world's destroyed. There's no millennium on the earth. The earth is gone and there's a new earth. But that's just an aside. The day of the Lord's going to come like a thief. He's going to destroy the, the world. He's going to burn it up. And it's it, the earth and its works are going to be burned up. You see, the destruction of Sodom was just a, a picture, a little one. There's only five cities that had the fire fall on them. Just a small picture of this overwhelming flood of fire that's going to come upon this world to dissolve it. It's going to be burned up completely. So if there's anybody here that is not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, a true believer in Jesus Christ, give your life to Christ. Judgment's coming. We don't know when that day is. The world will not expect it. It will be sudden, and it will be thorough. But there is hope. There is hope. God saved some from Sodom, and He's saving some today. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many go therein. But the gate is narrow, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. I was struck just this last week. How many people do you think were living in Sodom at that time? We have no way of really knowing, do we? But I'm sure that the three people that were saved were quite a minority compared to everybody else. There was probably hundreds if not thousands living in those, those cities that were destroyed. Think about Noah. Eight people are saved. There was probably millions living on the earth during that time. The minority, the remnant, is saved. There is hope in Jesus Christ. If you'll turn to Him, if you'll flee your sin and trust Jesus Christ the strong Son of God who came down from heaven to earth, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death for the sins of men. Trust Him. Turning from sin to Christ, He'll save you. Now what does it mean for Christians? The vast majority of us here today are believers in Christ. Look at verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. What is our response? We are to live 
according to verse 12, in holy conduct and godliness. We know that day is coming. So we purify ourselves even as he is pure. We cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and spirit. What this is calling you to is a life of radical holiness. It's, it's a life of not being content to live in sin. When you know there's sin in your life, pursue holiness. The Bible says without that holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Holiness is a genuine fruit of genuine conversion. If there's no holiness going on, you need to doubt, has Jesus Christ changed me? Has he regenerated me? Am I his child? There needs to be a pursuit of holiness, a pursuit of godliness. And that means shunning the wicked ways of the world that we live in. Wherever you see those wicked ways, turning from that, it involves what you do with your hands, what you do with your eyes, what you do with your ears, where, where your feet take you, what you meditate on, what you think about. Every part of our being, God wants us to be holy unto the Lord. In fact, that's why Jesus died. Over in Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her. You know, that's the goal of Jesus dying on the cross, was that he would have a bride without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. In fact, that's why God chose these people, Ephesians chapter 1, that we were chosen to him from the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's what God wants from our lives. Holy life, blameless life, godly character. And so if the Lord has been showing you sin in your life, don't say, okay, I'll, I'll get to that next week. I'm going to indulge myself this week. I'm just going to live in that a little bit longer because I kind of like it. No, today is the day of salvation. The day, today is the day of turning from sin and repenting of sin because judgment is coming. And we want to be found pleasing to the Lord, don't we? When the Lord comes, we want to appear as, as lights shining in a dark world. May he make that to be true. Let's pray. Father, would you seal the truth of your word to the hearts of your children today? Lord, we do know that Christ is coming. We don't know when. We're looking for it. We're looking for his coming. But Lord, we pray that you would help us as we are waiting just like those angels, to take people by the hand and seize them and bring them out of the dis that destructive, the city that's going down into destruction. Like it says in Jude, uh, to snatch those who are like brands, hating even the garments polluted by the flesh. May we pursue holiness and may we pursue making disciples with all of our might. Lord, make this church known for a church that is serious about making disciples and pursuing holiness. And we pray all of this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.